Well, it's great to see you tonight. Appreciate those who've come to visit with us and glad for those members here. And just grateful for this time together as we come to study again from the wisdom literature and uh, in a world that seems to have forgotten its way. I think it's more important than ever that Christians be grounded in the wisdom of God. And the books Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are made by the Lord and given by the Holy Spirit, I think, to address wisdom as a subject. And so yesterday we spent some time in the Proverbs, uh, and today we'd like to begin uh, looking at a couple of lessons from the book of Job. In fact, three lessons from the book of Job. I think there are, uh, if we are creative, at least four great voices in the book of Job. Uh, we certainly see the voice of God. I think we hear the voice of Satan. I think we hear the voice of Job. And if we lump all the friends together, we can make that four. And uh, I wasn't a math major, but we got three nights and four uh, points of focus. That certainly is a bit of a challenge. And so I, I just say that to say, you know, it's the, it's the job of any teacher and the challenge of any teacher. You're going to take material and uh, it's a vast subject, and here's maybe what you know about it, and even that might be more than you can get said in uh, a few minutes. So, Brother Rader mentioned about taking notes, and I love to take notes, and I encourage that. But I do want to make this point about that. If you're here and you're a note taker, and uh, you're trying to write down passages, some of these charts I may sort of edit on the fly, and I may just simply put up a chart and cover a point, and then move on, just time's sake. Don't get frustrated about that, please. I know that can be frustrating as a listener. These charts will be here. Somebody smart will record it somewhere. And if you happen to want them, you're welcome to them. Anything that I've got on this subject, you're welcome to. I'm glad to share. If you think it's worthwhile, you take it. But please don't let that frustrate you. Feel free to write down questions if I'm unclear or something you just flat disagree with. Talk to me about those things. And I'd be very grateful for that. And I learn a great deal in those kind of interactions. And, um, and I, I'd be happy for you to help me in that way. But uh, let's think for a few minutes tonight about the great wisdom that's found in the book of Job. <clears throat> uh, you know, we, we tell people that you need to read the Bible. And that's right. There's a difference between reading the Bible and reading about the Bible. And I, I really think there's a value in both. One is essential. You have to read the Scriptures. But I also believe that uh, I find some value in reading the words of men, the writers, those who've studied the book. But you do find when you read about a book of the Bible, you know, ideas that are sometimes good, sometimes not. One thing that I believe about the book of Job, the very first words tell us, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. I believe it's important to recognize that this book is a book written by a real man. Uh, there are some who hold other views about that. If you read about the book of Job, uh, you might find ideas like this. The scene is set with an old folk tale about how God tested Job. Job was a well-known figure of wisdom, perhaps like Paul Bunyan in the legends of Minnesota. Uh, another fellow wrote, most scholars doubt that Job was actually a historical person. Well, I've known some brethren who maybe questioned that, and I, they were smart fellows. So I, 
I don't want to be too harsh about this, but I, I just cannot believe that. I think in the first place it's just wrong. I don't think that's true. I think there's evidence to suggest otherwise, not the least of which is the quotation from Ezekiel, you may remember, where Ezekiel uh, brings up three men. Oh, these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job in the land, they would say by their own souls. Now, I know good and well Daniel wasn't a figure of somebody's imagination. It wasn't Babe Blue Ox. He was a contemporary uh, of Ezekiel's. And, of course, who can forget that passage? And maybe if we have a chance, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. From James, where James is talking about how the brethren he was writing to need to hold on and to be patient and learn from the example of Elijah, a man of like passions like we are. And he brings up the patience of Job. And so, what difference does it make? Well, I think it makes this difference. I think it takes away from the power of the story. Whenever we think about the book of Job as just sort of a fairy tale or just an illustration, we can learn from fiction. But I don't think that's what's going on here. And somehow when you read about something that happened to your neighbor down the street or somebody that you know, and you read about something they've been through, it just means the more. And so I believe in the first place, I want to look at this story, and I'm talking to folks here in this audience. I'd be shocked if the vast majority of this audience are not well familiar with the story of Job. But I, I'd like for you to, to do this with me and just look at it again and to take the opportunity to think about this in terms of a man that you know, someone that you, uh, that you certainly recognize as being flesh and blood. Job was a real man. Something else the Bible tells us early on about Job was he was a wealthy man. And if you'll open up the, your Bible with me and you look over the book of Job, uh, we remember there in verse 3 that his substance was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household so that this man was the greatest man of all the East. Uh, maybe you've seen things like this. People write articles once in a while and they'll try to calculate the wealth of Job. You may have run across things like that. I've run across a few. They don't ever quite agree. But they all agree that Job was a multimillionaire. I mean, in the tens of millions of dollars. And I think, well, how expensive can camels be? I don't know. I, I wouldn't even know how to start to price one, but I'm not going to argue with them. I, I, the, the text says that he was a great man. And I think that he's probably thinking there about his great wealth. He was greater in other ways that were a lot more important. He was a fabulously wealthy man, prospered in an amazing way. But something that I'm sure meant more to Job was his family. And also, uh, we are told about that Job had uh, seven sons and three daughters. And by the way, a, a wife that he loved very much. And so this family was precious to him. And in the small details we're given about his family, you tell that this is a man who cared deeply about the condition of his family and about the relationship that he had with them. But beyond everything else, I guess, is that unforgettable description about Job's character and his relationship with God that he was a holy man. Uh, he was, the old King James, perfect, upright, feared God, and eschewed evil. He was uh, a perfect man, not flawless. That's not the point, is it? And the book would indicate he was not a flawless man. But he was a man given to sincere dedication to God. 
He was an upright man, straight as opposed to crooked. That's the idea there. What you saw with Job was what you got. And what you got was a man who feared God. He was a dedicated, reverent man. And it was genuine. Now let me just ask you, how many multimillionaires do you know that you could say that about? How many people could you say that about? It's a rare bird indeed. Uh, it always has been, even in Job's day, to find rich people whose uh, priorities are in the direction that Job's priorities were. And then that great word there, we don't use the word astute anymore, unless we're reading Job. Uh, it's an old word, they tell me, that comes from the old French. It's related to our word shy. And it says something more than just the fact that Job was not a sinner. What it said was that Job not only did not sin, but that he actively worked to get away from sin. That's an old uh, saying, not a biblical proverb, but uh, somebody made the point that there are some people, a thief, might think himself to be an honest man because he has no opportunity to steal. You know, Well, that's not exactly a good test of honesty if you don't have opportunity. But Job wasn't a man who simply just didn't do wrong. He avoided wrong in an active way, steered clear of evil. And more than that, when you look at the book of Job, and we get to that part that, you know, the casual student, you know, just looks at Job as if it's two chapters long. Uh, but there are 40 other chapters. And when you look at all of the chapters and all the things that Job says, uh, and he relates about himself, we remember that Job was a man not only who avoided wrong, but who chose right. One of our favorite passages is found over in chapter 29. Last speech of Job. Uh, he's talking uh, just very frankly about his life before disaster befell him and how that his priorities were always in the direction of serving God. And he said, people knew me for that. Any ears that heard me blessed me. Any eyes that saw me spoke well of me. And he says that not because he was wealthy. You know, people fawn after the rich. But here's a man who was admired for his character. He talks about how that he rescued the poor who called for help. And that the orphans who had no one were helped by Job. I put on righteousness as my clothing and practiced justice. It was my robe and I was the eyes of the blind and feet for the lame and a father to the needy. And I carefully investigated cases brought by strangers. He was a man of influence and here's somebody who has no influence. What can he do for you, Job? Nothing. But he cared about justice and folks being treated right. My favorite expression there, maybe yours too, is that one in verse 13 when he said, uh, I, I received a blessing from the dying and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. What a great picture that is. And I'd, I'd be very surprised we're just getting to know each other. I'm sure there are a lot of folks in this room who've done that same thing. They've made the widow's heart sing for joy. And here's a lady It just pictures for us Here's a lady, and she's just at the end of her rope, and she don't know which way to turn. And here you come up the driveway or come up the sidewalk with a, a sack of groceries, and you say, you know, uh, we bought some extra stuff and thought you might could use it. And she didn't know what she was going to do till you got there. Yeah, I think we understand that. 
I made the widow's heart to sing for joy. Now that's the kind of man we're talking about. But what we remember about Job is he is the great sufferer in the dark. Uh, I think it's fair to say Job is not the story about when good people suffer. It's the story about when an excellent man, the best of men, suffers incredibly. And he does not, and as far as I know, never does know why. That's an important focus in the book of Job, isn't it? There's an expression in verse chapter 3 and verse 25, and it's translated a little bit different different ways, different translations, I should say. But one translation reads, Job says in that first speech there, after his friends get there, he says, my worst fears have all come true. You talk about living a nightmare. Again, think about this in terms of a real man. In the first place, Job lost all of his possessions and all of his servants as well. Go back to the first chapter. And there was a day when the sons and daughters of Job were eating and drinking and wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. They've slain the servants with the edge of the sword and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans have made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, they have slain thy servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And all that wealth, gone. As far as Job is concerned, in the length it took to read that. And I think Job, knowing the kind of man that he was, would have been well aware not just of the material wealth that was gone, but of those servants which I believe, knowing Job, that he knew those men. And to realize that they're gone as well. It was crushing. But then, it's the next verse. And I don't know, I'm just trying to imagine this scene. The text doesn't give us all this information. But while he was yet speaking, there came another. Do you suppose that Job knew where that servant came from? And he's thinking, please, no. Please know. Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Ten children gone. I talked about seeing this man is a real man. I read an article, uh, it was last August, just about a year ago, out of the St. Louis area, and it made the papers, maybe you saw it. There was a woman, and without getting into the details of it, uh, her family was destroyed in in an apartment fire. Uh, Two-year-old, four-year-old, seven-year-old twins, and a nine-year-old. All these girls gone. 
And there was a picture that went with it. And they had a, a, a mass grave and five pink coffins in the grave. I, I, I thought for just a second that I might put that up on a chart, and I thought, I would not do that to you. I wish I could forget that picture. And we read that, and we're just crushed by it. We think, that's awful. Job was a real man, and he lost in one day 10 children whom he loved, whom he would uh, uh, take to God, whom he would fret over, and whom he would pray for. He also lost his health. That's told to us in the book, the second chapter. And in verse 7, Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape withal and sat down among the ashes. You probably like me, you've read a lot of fellows who want to tell you what was the disease that uh, Job suffered with. And you know they don't know because no two agree. But you have hints in the book that, that maybe give us a little insight, whatever it was. 7.5, Job says, My flesh is clothed with maggots and clots of dirt, and my skin is broken and festering. 16.8, He has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen against me. It testifies to my face. My skin turns dark and peels. My body burns with fever. When I lie down, I ask, when will I get up? But the evening is long and I'm exhausted from tossing until dawn. At night, my bones, all my bones ache. The pain that gnaws on me never stops. It was miserable. And I think about the loss of his reputation that he suffered. You find, for example, in chapter 17 and verse 6, Job laments, he has made me a laughing stock for many people. And now they spit in my face. In chapter 30, he has a good bit to say, doesn't he, there toward the very end of his, of his speeches. And now those who are younger than I am laugh at me. One time I was a man of respect, but now I didn't think their father's worthy of, of, of watching over my dogs. And now their children look down on me and make me a laughingstock. I become a joke. They make fun of me with songs. He's the famous man of sorrows. A loser. A guy that's just been dumped on his head. God doesn't love him. Why should we? They keep their distance and they don't hesitate still to spit in my face when they get close enough. I'm overcome with terror. My dignity is gone like a puff of wind and my prosperity like a cloud. You know, and just thinking about these statements, it's obvious that there were some folks in town that were jealous of Job. Don't you think that's a fair assessment? You know, while Job was on top, they didn't say anything, but they thought it. They thought, I don't like that guy. He's got everything going. And boy, when he fell, they were there to let him have it. It reminds you a little bit of um, uh, Shimei. Remember Shimei? You know, he was mad at Benjamin. He hated David. 
but David's the king. You're going to be quiet, you know. But, but then when David had to leave town because of Absalom, there he is on the side of the road making a spectacle of himself just to let David know, I hate you. And here are these people that hate Job. This is a rather cynical view, but I heard one guy uh, tell his son. He said, son, don't tell people your problems. He said, in the first place, half the folks don't care. And he said, the other half, glad you got them. Well, I hope that's not true. I certainly don't think that ought to be true in the body of Christ. But that must have been the way Job felt. One thing I think is for sure, we can be pretty sure there was no GoFundMe for Job, you think? No uh, hashtag Job Strong, no campaign to get, no. There were people that were glad that he had the troubles. And then, you know, you had those who he thought he could count on. He's put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant. He gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. Those whom I've loved have turned against me. His own family, his own wife. I don't think there that he's talking in verse 17 about the way his, his literal breath smelled. I don't think that's the point. I, I think there the word uh, for breath in the Hebrew, they tell me, is like it is in the Greek. Words that, uh, a word like pneuma can mean breath, it can mean wind, or it can mean spirit. And maybe the better understanding there would be, Job says, my spirit is strange to my wife. We, we can tell that from the encounter in chapter 2. They're going two different paths here. They, Job is trying to hang on and his wife has given up hope spiritually. And it's another burden that Job has to bear alone. And he's given up hope, really. In 29 verse 1, Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and my, his light, by his light, I walked through the darkness. It was a day I was in my prime. Friendship of God was upon my tent. The Almighty was yet with me. My children were around me. My steps were washed with butter. And the rock poured out streams of oil for me. There was a time when I had the world by the tail. And I felt certain, verse 18, that I would live a long and happy life and die in my own bed. And uh, sometimes we ask the question, you know, what happens when dreams don't come true? What happens when our plans for the future get changed radically and, and in a horrible way? That may have happened to some folks in this audience, or it may yet happen to some of us. We have our plans, our ideas, what we'd like to see, what we'd like to do, how we'd like it to go, and what if it all goes wrong? 
as it did for David or for Moses as far as his desire to enter the promised land or, or Samuel in reference to his family. Job said, my plans have been shattered along with my heart's desire. So what does a man do when he loses everything? Well, I'll tell you what Job did. Chapter 1 and verse 20, Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God foolishly. And then after he was struck personally, that is physically, and his wife said to him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God, and die? And we have no justification for the wife of, of Job here and what she said. What she said was devilish. What she said was wrong. But she had lost ten children. You know, I hadn't been where she's been. I have no justification for what she did. But I think we ought to feel for her. And Job speaks to her and he says, you're talking foolishly. He says, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And if we could just close the book right there, that would be a picture, wouldn't it? But like we said, we got 40 more chapters. And I'll tell you what we find in those 40 chapters is we find a lot of up and down. Uh, there's a word that we don't use a lot, undulation, that somehow fits here. I think of that word, I think about golf. I don't play golf anymore. When I did, I wasn't any good at it. But uh, that's the word they would use. You watch golf on television, if you're so inclined. And I'll tell you one thing I noticed was that that green just looks flat, and then you get out there, especially on those professional courses, and man, it's anything but flat. It's just filled with ups and downs. And Job's life was that way, his reaction to this. You just read through the book of Job and you can see him going up and down in terms of his reaction to these things. Job himself admitted that he was rash in his words, but he tried to justify it. Chapter 6, he said, well, you know, my, my calamity is so heavy. Therefore, my words, they indeed are rash. Quick, too quick. Job started out by saying God has a right to do what he wants to. How can we tell God what to do? But it wasn't long before Job decided that there was some wrong going on here. Chapter 16. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. He's talking about God. God gives me up to the ungodly and cast me into the hands of the wicked. And I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with a breach upon breach. A little different tone than it was in verse chapter 1, wasn't it? As it would be, and as human beings are prone to do. It got worse. It got a lot worse. I guess to me, maybe one of the low moments was chapter 9. We all remember uh, there in, in, in chapter 9, in verse 24, 
This is one thing, therefore I said it. He, God, destroys the perfect and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he will laugh at the trial of the innocent. The earth is given under the hand of the wicked, and he covers the face of the judges thereof. If not, where and who is he? Who else is responsible for the wickedness in the world, for allowing it to be so? He said, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse myself with lime, yet you plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. How can a man be right with God? Ain't no way to be right with God. He doesn't care. In the 16th chapter of Job, I think we see in this passage an interesting example, one of several, of how Job feels that he's been too quickly judged and misjudged and mistreated and then turns around and does the same thing to God. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Eliphaz had given a hard speech in 15. Now 16, Job says, you're miserable comforter. Shall words of wind have no end? What provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if your soul was in my soul's place. If we traded places, I could treat you like you're treating me. But I wouldn't do you that way. I would strengthen you, and I would comfort you. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved, and though I remain silent, how am I eased? You're treating me unfairly. But then look what he does. He turns right around and he says, And now he, God, has worn me out. You have made me desolate, or all my company. He tears me in his wrath. He hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. God has delivered me to the ungodly. And he turned me over to the hands of the wicked. It never seemed to occur to Job because of the pain he was suffering and the difficulty he was under. A difficulty I've never faced. That what his friends were doing to him was exactly what he was doing to God in a sense. Job would say to his friends, does my life with you down through the years count for nothing? And I think Job could hear the same thing from God. Does my life with you down through the years count for nothing? And Job would say to his friends, won't you give me the benefit of the doubt? And God would say to Job, won't you give me the benefit of the doubt? And Job would say to his friends, you're faced with something you don't understand and you accuse me of all kind of wickedness. And God would say, Job, you're faced with what you don't understand and you accuse me of all kind of wickedness. And Job would say to his friends, aren't friends supposed to remain loyal to one another, even in hard times? And God would say, yeah, I thought that was true too. I'm not underestimating Job's pain at all. I'm just saying that he somehow in his moment of crisis, failed to give God the same benefit he desired. And I think that there's a lesson for me in that as well. What do we make of this kind of language? As Job can speak sometimes quite harshly. You know, I've actually run across some people who tell us that that's commendable. That Job is a model for how you deal with problems in that way and that, that uh, any language that Job uses is perfectly appropriate for us. 
one of the commentators reading about the book of Job called the book of Job the song of songs of skepticism. And he said, as believers, we need to remember that proud disillusionment, profound, I'm sorry, disillusionment is one of the essential stages in the training of the disciple. You believe that? I don't believe that. I don't really believe that speaking harshly of God is somehow a virtue. People do suffer, and we ought to be patient with suffering. We want people to be patient with us, and people say things sometimes in their suffering they don't mean. And I believe God is patient, and God is forgiving. But surely when the Lord said about Job that he spoke the right thing concerning me, he wasn't talking about what he said in chapter 9. He was talking about another sense in which Job had spoken right where the friends hadn't. In fact, what God does is he corrects Job to start with. He challenges him there in, in chapter 38. Who is he that darkens counsel? Jim McGuigan wrote a book on Job, and um, he, he made a point about this particular question. He said, what we're talking about here is not will God forgive us when we're in agony and scream and snarl unjust accusations at him. The question is, is there anything to be forgiven? The book of Job is not written to urge us to rage against God, as Job sometimes does. I hear some say that if you don't rage against God when you're in pain, your faith isn't authentic. He said, I think that's rubbish. We aren't to grovel, that's clear from Job. But to sacrifice God on the altar of our own self-righteousness or pain is the other extreme. He is sovereign Lord, and the book of Job makes that clear. I don't think we ought to take the weak moments of Job and say, this is what we ought to be doing. No, that's not the lesson for us to learn. We can have great sympathy with Job, as God does. But what I hope we learn is that even despite those low moments, Job had an overriding sense of confidence in God. Sometimes he would say awful things that he shouldn't have said, and God told him so. But in his heart, Job never lost his confidence in God. Chapter 13 and verse 15. This is translated in different ways in a couple of different translations, but the old King James, I think, makes good sense to me in the context. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite shall not come before him. There's just something there that says, I don't care what happens. I know that God will do right. Chapter 19, what a great passage that is, and it deserves more time than we're going to give it tonight. But that's where that famous statement is, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. We've made a great song out of that, using that title. I know that my Redeemer lives. I love to sing that song. But I have to tell you, I don't really think that this passage, if I understand it, uh, is a prophecy of the Lord coming. I don't really think it's a, it's a prophecy of the resurrection at the last day. I don't really think that's what Job is talking about. It doesn't fit well in the context. The word here for uh, redeemer 
is that uh, word that you may remember from your Old Testament studies, goal. Uh, that doesn't sound very familiar to me. But I, when I trace its usage and I go back over, is it Numbers 35? Where he talks there, you remember that's where he talks about the, the avenger of blood? Here's the near kinsman, and, and one of his duties was that if a, if a kinsman was killed, it was his job to take vengeance. He was an agent of the state. That's where the cities of refuge came in. You know, uh, you had to flee if you had taken blood to one of those places. Then they'd judge and figure out whether you were a murderer or a manslayer. And if he caught you before you got there, well, you were fair game. He's the avenger, the goal. Now, I realize, I think, that pretty clear that the book of Job was written before the law, but I doubt that this Gaal was just invented by the law of Moses. My guess is it's an old tradition, but the idea in this passage seems to be that Job is saying, God will be my avenger. That sort of ruined the song, wouldn't it? I know that my avenger live doesn't ring, but, but I think that's really the point. And what he's doing, I think, in the context, he is warning his friends. And he's telling them, you're just way too confident in how you're treating me with disdain. Because I don't care what it looks like or what God's allowing. In the end, I know God. And I know that he will not leave me. He will ultimately avenge me in my flesh. You know, under the law, the avenger came after you died. But Job said, I'll be here, and I'll see it, and you better fear. Um, yeah, verse 20, the last verse there, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishments of the sword. I think that's a warning. Based on his confidence in God, in 23, in verse 8, another great statement of confidence. Behold, I go forward, and he's not there. Backward and I don't perceive him on the left hand when he's working and I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand and I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Whatever God's allowing now, I know in the end God is honest and I will be vindicated by God. And he was. And the book concludes there in chapter 42 with this great statement. I love the old King James translation here. That expression, God turned the captivity of Job. I think that's great. When he prayed for his friends, when he humbled himself, when he showed the love of God, God turned his captivity and gave him twice as much as he had before. And the lesson, of course, is not material prosperity equals divine favor. That's, that's not the point of the book. But I think it just represents the, the, the fact that when the trial was over, God rushed to bless him because that God never forgot him through any of this. He was never forgotten, never out of the sight of God. And Job knew that in his heart. Job faced his ups and downs. Sometimes he spoke rashly, sometimes he spoke shamefully. But Job never lost his resolve to do right. And in chapter 31, you know, the last speech of Job that we have here, he starts off by saying, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I look upon a maid? For what portion of God is there from above? And what inheritance of the Almighty on high? Is not destruction to the wicked? And a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? 
Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? After all that's happened to you, Job, Job says, yep, I'm here as low as you can go, but I'm still not going to use my eyes to lust because I would not face God with that on my conscience. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's tough. That's a, that's a man of resolve. Job never stopped looking up. He never did curse God and die. He never did quit. He was founded on a rock. And what he does is he shows me that I can stand a lot more than I think I can. And that great passage in James chapter 5, five times in this passage, James uses patient or patience. And he calls on the brethren he's writing to, to hold on. Four times he uses a word that, that literally means long-tempered, long-holding out of the mind. Don't be quick-tempered. Don't be exasperated. Don't give up. But then he talks about Job, and he uses a synonym. I'm sure it's basically the same idea because use the same word in English to translate it, but it's the word upomone. And the word there, they tell me, means literally uh, to abide under. I think about, you know, in, in Alabama, we get a lot of tornadoes and storms. I probably, I know you do in central Tennessee as well. And you go out to the, to the shelter and the storm's upon you and there's no place to run and you just hang on. I tell you, I've heard people say, well, I think after reading the book of Job carefully, Job wasn't very patient problem with that is the Holy Spirit said he was patient. So it must be, I don't understand what the word patience means. And it doesn't mean that you're smiling all the time. Uh, but what it means is what we read absolutely about Job. He was a man who never quit. So here's the practical lesson. I'm talking to folks, real people here. I don't know your story. Uh, you don't know mine. But I know there are folks in this room who have suffered and who have struggled and who have things that burden their hearts. It may be physical, it may be some pain that you feel in the loss of someone else, or the spiritual loss of another, or whatever it might be, financial. I tell you what Job says to us, hold on. You can make it. God knows. He cares. Sometimes we don't think enough about that. That all this time God was hurting with Job. Just as surely as you and I hurt with our children. He knows what you're going through and you can make it if you hold to him. That's the great lesson of Job. But I want to say something in just the last couple of minutes about Job's friends. And Job's friends did a lot of damage. One of the reasons why I think Job struggled as much as he did was the people that might have been there to support him turned out to be anything but a support. Your sinful, scheming mind, is, is that's, the, that's the root of the problem, Job. That's what Eliphaz said. So far, one said, you know, yes, God's punishing you for your wickedness, and, and actually you're getting less than you deserve. And I thought, wow, I don't know that we got another gear here other than just, just being killed. It was uh, probably the worst speech was uh, 22. That's Eliphaz's last speech where he, he, he just rails against Job. He's just at this point so exasperated. He just carries on with all kinds of charges. Uh, your, your iniquity is, is, is just endless. You've exacted pledges of your brother. You've given no water to the weary. You've withheld bread from the hungry. 
You have sent the widows away empty. You know that's not true. The scriptures tell us that's not true. And Job had to take that. And it beat on him like it was a, a hammer. Chapter 19, we were looking at that a moment ago. We didn't read the first couple of verses there. But uh, that's where Job says, How long will you vex my soul and break me in pieces with your words? You think words can hurt? You know they can hurt. Job knew they could hurt. In chapter 6, he gives this great picture there. He compares his friends, these miserable comforters. He says, it's like a man going through the desert. And he knows that there is a stream up here if he can just make it there. And when he gets there, he finds it dry. He said, that's what you guys saw. That's the disappointment that you brought me. But I want to tell you that they didn't come to hurt Job. Again, when you read about the book of Job, there's some who have the idea that these men, yes, they came to just punish Job. And that's why they sat there uh, for all that time without speaking, just giving the silent treatment. I mean, what book are you reading? Chapter 2 and verse 11. And when Job's friends heard of all the evil that was come upon him, they came every one of his own place Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And they lifted up their eyes and they saw him afar off and they knew him not. I had something happen to me one time. Every time I think of, read this passage, I think about it. I'm sitting in a place and there was a guy that came in late. He was on a stick, you know, he was rather frail, and he came and he sat down on the back row. And I didn't notice his wife came in a little bit later, dropped him off, I guess. And I was speaking, and sometimes when I'm speaking, I don't see all I ought to see. But anyway, I thought, I'm about to meet that guy after service. I went back there, and I got a look at his wife. This is a guy that has stayed in my house. I knew the man. I wasn't best friends with him, but I certainly knew him. Well, I did not recognize him. I knew he'd had a lot of health troubles. When I saw him, I could not believe it. And they sat down on the ground seven days and seven nights, and nobody said a word. It reminds you of Ezekiel, really. I don't think they're being mean to him here. I, again, I've just, years ago, 35 years ago, I was at a place, and we were digging a water line. Uh, one Saturday afternoon, we got a phone call. One of the members had died. Young man in his 30s, under the worst circumstances you can imagine. So we just got in the car, we rushed over to the house, little house, little living room there, and there sits his pregnant wife and his two little children. And he's gone. And I can remember... You know, sitting in that living room, and it comes back to me when I think about this story. And, well, you know, I'm the preacher. I ought to be able to say something. I'm 25. I know everything. I, I, I could not make words come out. And you say, I'm sorry. And, you, you know, you, can I get you something, get some water? <laughs> what you do? There's nothing you can say. You can't make, you can't fix this. You can't fix it. Oh, yeah, I think I can, I can relate to these fellows. 
At some point in time, they became convinced this was a judgment of God. At some point in time, they resented Job not fessing up. But I don't think they came to torture him. And that's the point. These are the villains of the story. But they're not cartoon characters. These are real people. They're people just like us. That's what makes this story, to me, their part of it so terrifying. You know, the Lord said to his disciples, he said, there are folks that will kill you and think they're doing God's service. And Paul would go up to Antioch, that great sermon there, I think I got it, yeah, Acts 13, Antioch of Pisidia. And it's just like Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, except it's in a different place. Peter said, you did this. Paul said, they did this. They killed the Christ. But those are the people, they weren't cartoon characters either. They're people who sat in synagogues and heard the scriptures read about the Messiah, uh, Isaiah 50, over and over again. And then they wound up fulfilling them. And is there a more sobering passage than uh, Matthew 7? Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. He that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied of thy name? And thy name cast out devils, done many wonderful works. And I'll say to them, he doesn't say to them, I don't know you. He said, I never did know you. You've been fooling yourself the whole time. When you read the story of Job and you read the part of these men, we'll just leave uh, Elihu for another day. But we'll think about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Understand, these men didn't see themselves as being evil men. They thought they were standing up for God. And I'll say this too. You know, God made a, a way for them to be saved. And I think in the end they were. Reminds you of Saul of Tarsus. So these are not cartoon characters. But they did so much damage. Why? Because they were sure of one thing. Whoever perished being innocent. That's the first speech of Eliphaz. And that's the same thing Bildad said and Zophar said. And they said it over and over again. Good people don't suffer like this. We live, we serve a just God. And you, you, you reap what you sow, and this is not how it goes for good people. You know, there's some folks who say the book of Proverbs has the same philosophy that these three friends did. If you read about the book of Job, you'll run into that idea. One fellow wrote, and he said, um, in his first argument then, we have Eliphaz, the upholder of the wisdom teaching of the book of Proverbs. Now, a modernist commentator like that doesn't care about the timing, but, he, but his basic point is, that you don't see a dime's worth of difference in Eliphaz's speech and in his friend's philosophy and in the Proverbs. The issue confronting Eliphaz is that an innocent man suffering the kind of thing that only wicked men should. We are witnessing in the book of Job, Mr. Gibson writes, the collapse of the whole edifice of Hebrew wisdom or at any rate of the theological and ethical reasoning that underpinned it. No sensitive Jew or Christian will after this Read the book of Proverbs or the first or the 37th or the 49th or the 73rd Psalm with complete approval or ease. He will be unable to share without grave reservations the unclouded confidence of their authors. I bring this up to say that you might run into that idea yourself. Somebody will come along and say the book of Proverbs is no good. It's just this Pollyanna, silly, simplistic, uh, canned answers to life. And when we hear that, we think, what book are you reading? 
If you're reading Proverbs, you don't read a book that doesn't think that bad things can, can't happen to good people. Uh, the very first story there is the story of a man who is joining a group of murderers who are going to prey on innocent people. And you read about a woman that pulls down her own house with all kinds of innocent victims involved in that. Or those who walk in uprightness and yet they are poor. Or tailbearers who wound their innocent neighbors. Only people that don't read Proverbs think that it's somehow unrealistic. Proverbs is from God as well as Ecclesiastes, as well as the book of Job. They have, I think, a different aim in some ways, though they are related by the subject of wisdom. The Proverbs are there to simply define the difference, compare and contrast wisdom and folly, and to say that wisdom is always, whatever happens, always the best way. And Ecclesiastes, I think, has to do with our very nature. You know, how can we be fulfilled as human beings? We have to serve our Creator. And the book of Job is a book of faith. And to say when things don't look right and when we're undergoing the difficult times, we've got to hold on to God. And so there's no conflict between Job and Proverbs. Job understood well that the innocent do suffer. And if we had time, we'd go to chapter 21. It's, it's, it, depending on how you count Job's speeches, fifth or sixth speech before Job finally uh, addresses directly the philosophy of the friends. You know, up to this point, he'd just been saying, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a sinner. And then in chapter 21, he says, look, are you guys really telling me that innocent people don't suffer? He says, uh, to the contrary, the wicked, verse 7, live and become old and are mighty in power and their offspring are before their eyes and their animals are doing fine and their houses are doing fine. They spend their days in wealth, verse 13 of chapter 21. And in a moment, so quickly, so painlessly, they go down to the grave. And they say to God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. There are a lot of folks in this country right now that live like this. I don't need religion. I'm doing fine. And they are until they die. But the point is, Job says, if you think that the wicked don't prosper, <laughs> where is it? Um, verse 33, he said, if you ask not them that go by the way. In other words, Job says, uh, if you think that the wicked don't prosper, you haven't been many places, have you? Ask anybody walking up and down the road. Anybody knows that. Everybody knows. And he, he says, I hesitate to bring it up. I don't want to join them. But what you're thinking is not realistic, and it's not. That if you suffer, you must be wicked because only the wicked suffer. So why would somebody, smart as the friends were, hold on to this view that is so obviously false? Let me quickly give two answers that Job gives to that. And then I'll close. And I appreciate your patience. I think one answer that Job gave is he considered, why are his friends treating me? Why are they treating me this way? It's back in chapter 6. He says, my friends have dealt with me deceitfully as a brook, as a stream of brooks, they pass away. We referred to that a moment ago. And then he says, verse 21, For now you're nothing. You see my casting down and are afraid. One reason why they held on to this view was fear. And I think we can take that a couple of ways. Maybe they, he, Job simply meant, because you think God's punishing me, you don't want to stand too close to me. Maybe that's what he meant. But it might also be that he was saying, you're afraid to acknowledge the fact 
that an innocent man can suffer like I am because that would mean that you could suffer like this. And you just can't consider that possibility. When we hear about a murder in town. It's an awful thing. But somehow, aren't we a little bit comforted when we find out, oh, it was a drug deal that went bad. <laughs> Still terrible, but I, I'm not going to be in a drug deal that goes bad, so I, I'm not worried about it. But when you find a, a whole family of people murdered by a complete stranger just because of their home, that's a whole different thing. And these friends were afraid to admit that Job was innocent because of all that that might mean. <clears throat> One other thing that Job said, coupled with that, in chapter 13, when Job said about his friends, he said or to his friends, you whitewashed with lies, worthless physicians are you all. <clears throat> oh, that you would keep silent, that would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for Him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? What's he saying here? He talks about not being partial toward God, but partial for him. And he talks about whitewashing with lies. We know what whitewashing is, literally, and it has a metaphorical use of covering up something that's dirty. And then he talks about this idea of being partial for God. You only need to show partiality where merit is lacking, right? If you get your family member on at the job where you are by partiality, that means they couldn't have made it some other way. You know, if they're qualified, that's fine. If they're not, you need partiality to work for you. You need to be partial toward them. And it seems that Job is saying, you have the idea that God needs your help here. And that's why you have to, to change reality and ignore the obvious because somehow you think in doing that you're defending God. I think sometimes about some of our friends caught up in the charismatic movement. You know, why is it that intelligent people, smart people, I, I used to go when I lived in West Virginia, it's been a number of years ago, it wasn't uncommon for us to find studies with charismatics and they'd say, hey, would you come to church with me? Yeah, we're having a miracle service this week. Yeah, I'll go. And I'd go and I'd watch the thing. And uh, afterward they say, do you see all the miracles? And I'd say, I didn't see anything that looked remotely like a miracle. What were they looking at? Well, I think they were whitewashing for God because they were convinced that God had promised Jesus Christ the same yesterday, day, and forever. And if God ever did it, he's doing it now. And so to defend God, we're going to have to create miracles. And so they did. And I think his friends became convinced that just this can't happen in a just universe with a just God. And so they condemned an honest man. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that same trap. In being lured into the idea of, of answering the questions about the problem of evil, as some people have put it. David Hume was a 17th century, no, 18th century uh, British philosopher, atheist. And uh, he sort of encapsulated an old argument. Uh, that if God is omnipotent, omniscient, uh, holy good, how do you explain evil? If he can stop evil and doesn't, he's not good. If he can't stop it, he's not omnipotent. Either way, he's not God. And they're still making that argument, by the way. Uh, you may be familiar with the name Bart Ehrman. He's a professor 
up at the University of North Carolina, an atheist or an agnostic, I guess, depending on what day it is. I, I don't see any difference in his case. But uh, Ehrman is a scholar and a very smart fellow. But uh, he writes books, and he writes books that tear down faith. And if you go to the University of North Carolina, at least for a time, he was the chairman of the religion department, an atheist. I thought, there's an idea. i tell you what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for some university around here to call Brother Rader and say, we'd like you to chair our department of atheism. I think Brother Rader would say, oh yeah, I can do that. You just turn me loose on your students and I'd be happy to help all those atheists out. It doesn't work that way. It always works the other way. So anyway, Ehrman writes a book. Many have written similar books. God's Problem, if you can't read the subtitle, it reads, How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer. The Bible fails. God's problem. Our most important question. I am not. I can't match IQs with Bart Herman. He's a lot smarter fellow than I am, and I don't have a Princeton degree, but I know this. I know that our biggest question, our biggest problem, is not the question why we suffer. I'll tell you something else I know. I know Bart Herman ain't got the, the answer either. He could have easily written a book that says, Bart Herman's problem. Why atheists fail to answer the question, why we suffer. That'd have been a book. I'd have, I'd have bought that book. But because we don't know why, it doesn't mean that God has a problem. And, but then here somebody comes along who's a believer and says, well, let me tell you why God's people, God lets people suffer. <laughs> Please don't. Now, I, I know, and maybe you're thinking, well, don't we have some idea? Uh, that, that sin introduced pain into the world? Yes, that's true, that's true. And, and it, but that's in the overall sense. Can we, on an individual basis, ever connect the dots? Here's a guy, and he has been a drunk his whole life, and he's tried to, people try to help him, he refuses, and here he is, a young man, he gets in the car, and he crashes his car, and he dies. Can you figure out where that suffering came from? Yeah, I probably can figure that out. But here's what I can't figure out. Because see, he crashed his car into another car with a family of the best people you know, and they had two kids in the back, and they were all killed. Now, how do you answer that one? Where'd that come from? Why did God allow that to happen? Let me tell you, I don't know. Why is children's hospital always full? I'm thankful for the hospital. But why has it always got to, I don't know. But that doesn't stop some people from trying to be partial for God and fix it. And let me tell you, you know, that's not a new problem, is it? Probably you're thinking about John 9. And so Jesus passed by and he sees a man blind from birth. And uh, the disciples say, uh, now, Master, we got this pretty well figured out. Was, were his parents evil? Is that why they had a blind child? Or was, it, was he somehow uh, defective? From, and, and the Lord said, No. Now, the Lord went on to say, the works of God should be manifest in him. And I'm not here to tell you there's no answer, that there's no reason. I'm just telling you, I don't know. Unless God tells me, I don't know. The old saying, the secret things belong to God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. So here's the great lesson from Job's friends. They were well-meaning people, real people like you and I. But they spoke 
where they did not know, and they did a tremendous amount of damage. I've got to learn the humility that I think the book of Job teaches us through their failure. And I hope and pray that I'll take that to heart. There's more to say, but we're going to quit. You've listened so patiently, and I do appreciate it very much. Tomorrow night, Lord willing, uh, I want to speak about Satan in the book of Job and what the Bible shows us through Job, I think, about the process of temptation. And uh, I invite your kind attention and presence there if it's possible tomorrow night. Thank you for your kind attention. We're about to sing a song. And uh, it's a song to encourage those here who need to respond to God, whether it be come forward to obey the gospel of Christ, or maybe as a child of God, you want the prayers of the saints, or maybe you want to make a public apology for public sin. I don't know, but I'll tell you this, it's a great time to get right with God. And if we can help you in any way, we hope you'll let us do that right now while we stand, while we sing.